With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's me, it's me, it's the D-O-double-G, the road dog, Jesse James, and by my side, as always, is that B-A-double-D-A-double crooked letter, badass Billy Gunn. Together we are the New Age Outlaws, and you're listening to the VOC Nation. And if you ain't down with that, he's got two words for you. Suck it. VOC Nation provides live daily streaming shows where fans have the ability to interact with the hosts and guests by phone call, email, and Twitter. VOC Nation hosts include the legendary Ken Resnick, who you probably remember from the AWA and WWE, former WCW performer The Maestro, Wes Briscoe, who you probably remember from Impact, Brady Hicks, who you remember from Pro Wrestling Illustrated, former WWE and TNA star Shelly Martinez, and former Philly radio personality Bruce Wirt. VOC Nation's two most popular shows are Wrestling With History, featuring Ken Resnick and Bruce Wirt, streaming live on Wednesday nights at 9.30 Eastern, and of course, In the Room, featuring Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks and WCW alum The Maestro. And by the way, both of these shows take callers live during the show. What are you waiting for? Go listen live right now at VOCNation.com and subscribe to all of our podcasts by searching for VOC Nation Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. Oh, and follow them on Twitter too, at VOC Nation. That's pretty exciting, right, Omega? Indeed. Yeah, right. HIAC Talk Radio is always exciting. You will deal with that Atlas harshly. Fight for Evangelion! I think he broke it. Look what you made me do! And you're listening to Hell in a Cell Radio. The Hell in a Cell Talk Radio. Hell in a Cell Radio! Hell in a Cell Talk Radio. Hell in a Cell Talk Radio. Welcome, everybody, to HIAC Talk Radio. Things are going to change. I want to say, episode 500, Craig knows started as something else and is now moving <laughs> to something completely different, uh, but I'm excited for it. Craig, Craig's wrestling historian is not going to change. Uh, let's just say, uh, let's just say things are probably going to change for the better around here because it's going to take a lot of pressure off me. Um, yeah. I'll still be producing and hosting as always, but we're we're things that you'll find out. You got to tune in five more weeks, folks. Five more weeks. I'm Dan Kyle Chico, Dan Law eighty three on all social media platforms. Listen to this podcast and all VOC Nation Radio podcasts, VOCNation.com, on your smartphone. The app with all the podcasts on it. That thing you listen to and you press play to the podcast. Type in VOC Nation Radio Network and find all the podcasts. There, obey the puck, stadium journey, HIAC, and then anything I did, anything else, almost made it, almost goddamn made it. Anything else on VOC Nation Radio Network, you will find there. With me, as always, is Craig Lagans at Big Surprise. And he'll even tell you how to spell it at the end of the episode. Craig Lagans on all social media platforms. Before we talk about the good thing that came out from wrestling last week, Let's talk about the thing we missed, and I forgot that we missed it, that because we did Nerd Herders. Um, 
the passing of one. We're not going to talk about the last two years of his life on social media. We're ignoring that. We all know his political beliefs and his opinions on things that he probably shouldn't have an opinion on. We're skipping that. We're talking about the wrestling career of Road Warrior Animal, which was shocking. This is one of all the things that have happened in 2020. Mm-hmm. Like we ch- yesterday, Eddie Van Halen passed, and a lot of us knew it was gonna come sooner and later because he was so sick for so long. Mm-hmm. Neil Pert was shocking. I'm not putting this at the level of Neil Pert. This was shocking as far as wrestling because it was like, wait a minute, what? He was what it happened? Was a, and he was, it was going. A, a week after his anniversary, where uh, he, he was p- posting pics with him and his lovely wife of many many years the mother of his three children and we just say oh well that's great um he looks great and good for good for joe and then one week later joe laurinitis one half of the greatest tag team of all time i'll I'll say it others have said it others will continue to say it um bubba ray dudley said it anytime anyone asks him it's the road warriors hands down (laughs) Who am um, I to argue with Bubba Ray? Well, Bubba Ray, yeah. <laughs> you know? But the uh, one half of the team, I always say, I've said on this very podcast, that, and I'm so grateful for this podcast that I have an outlet to talk about uh, my our love of professional wrestling and, and how it's shaped me throughout my life. But the most influential tag teams, I always put the three, the Freebirds, the Fabulous Ones, and the Road Warriors, because you cannot discount what the Road Warriors meant to professional wrestling. The Road Warriors influenced more tag teams uh, than almost as many as the, the previous two that, that I mentioned. Because you, tag team wrestling, it was always, you know, if you had a big guy as part of a tag team, you had a little guy. You know, and, and they were just like a makeshift tag team. They were just a one and done type of deal. If you want to, you know, uh, team up uh, Andre with anyone or Dick the Bruiser with uh, a Tito Santana for a night because it was now you have two big guys on the same team and their style influenced everyone. They would attack folks before the bell. You know, usually when a team attacks another team before the bell, that's at the that's for the blow off feud. That's for the big revenge match where the faces run into the ring and attack the heels, you know, before the bell sounds and the crowd goes nuts. The Road Warriors were doing that on Saturday morning TV to start their careers. And it became the Road Warrior attack. And they, then it would, it would be when they would go to house shows, they'd run at breakneck speed toward the ring and then beat the crap out of their opponents. Uh, a lot of people on the old Georgia Championship Wrestling TV tapings when they you, you wrestlers would come to the arena, the TV studio, look at the booking sheets. Who were we up against? Anyone who saw the Road Warriors name, uh, if they stayed, they didn't stay long. Or though there was one, there's many. Will tell you they just turned around and left the building. Uh, I quit. I'm not taking the pay yeah. today. Yeah, uh, and and because these two guys, Joe Laurinaitis and, and Michael Hegstrand, uh, were were greener than grass uh, when they started. Uh, and yeah, were. Were stiff, but what made them great is that they learned, and when they be- and because they were both supermen, but when they started to sell, when they became uh, 
they became such a feared heel team that when they a babyface team got on their heels, the the place would go nuts. But because of the Road Warrior influence, and because they got so popular so fast, and they were on national TV on TBS during the infancy of the Superstation in '83 and '84, and this is also when cable TV was starting to expand. Then the next thing you know, the Road Warriors, the national, the Georgia national tag team champions. Oh well, now now Jerry Lawler wants them in Memphis. Now Eddie Graham wants them in Florida. Uh, now Vern Gagne wants them in the AWA. They're a Georgia, they're a local Georgia team. And then they and they he loaned them out and they go to all these different territories and they sell out. They were the tag team equivalent of Andre the Giant. No other wrestler was like Andre. Andre didn't belong to uh, uh, one federation during his career until Vince signed him exclusively because as his favorite to his dad. But Andre would appear in every different territory throughout the United States as a special attraction. The Road Warriors were the only tag team to do that. They would be, when you, they were main event in Florida. Then they would go to Tennessee with, with Jerry Lawler. They would go to Mid-South because Bill Watts loved them. They would go to the AWA. They would go to, to, to uh, California. Uh, over there, the NWA Los Angeles, because everyone needed the Road Warriors. And then when they couldn't get the Road Warriors exclusively, Dan, Territory started making up their own road warriors. That's their influence. In Florida, you had the Zambui Express, <laughs> Leroy Brown and, and, and Ray Candy. In the Central States, you had the Mod Squad, Spike and Basher. I told you Bill Watts loved the road warriors, so he created the Blade Runners, Rock and Sting. Rock became somebody, Sting became Sting. Uh, he had the powers of pain. Uh, it's just and, like you were course, like, he became somebody. <laughs> yeah. But but this person wouldn't have, but these two would not have become professional wrestlers if it were not for the Road Warriors. Because of the success of the Road Warriors, Rick Bassman said, well, these two muscle-bound guys are making tons of money. I can get two muscle-bound guys now that muscle-bound guys are in, now that every single territory wants their own muscle-bound tag team. Why don't I put together something? Call them Freedom USA or, or call them the Freedom Fighters or something. I'll get this guy, Steve Borden. I'll get this other guy. Jim Helwig, and we'll put them together and we'll make something because that's what's in now is you need a big muscle-bound tag team. Every territory needs one, even the WWF. They couldn't – they asked the – road. they met with the Road Warriors, with well, Paul Elwing more specifically. But the Road Warriors were making more money in 1986, 85, 86 in the NWA and the AWA than the WWF could pay them. And next thing you know, there's demolition. Because he couldn't get the Road Warriors. So all that, all these different teams I named were because of the influence of the Road Warriors. You cannot, then they, you couldn't have a tag team, the big man muscle, powers of pain, um, if not for the Road Warriors. And they almost became like, uh, I call them the real world of reality TV. The real world first was a, a trendsetter. Then they just became another reality show. And with the Road Warriors, they were trendsetters and now they became part of a very large pack. None of these other teams that I mentioned eclipsed them in popularity. No, no one was ever as good as them, but soon every, it seemed like every tag team had face paint and had muscles. The Samoan SWAT team and world class started painting their face because of the Road Warriors. When Sting and, and um, Rock broke up, they both kept 
wearing the paint because of the Road Warriors. I guess that Demolition wore the paint because of the Road Warriors. All because of what Joe Laurinaitis and Michael Hegstrand, when they got together, they did a variety of damage, to quote Mickey from Rocky. And um, <laughs> left a wake in their path. They were went from the national tag team champions to the AWA tag team champions. Finally, the NWA tag team champions. It's ironic they were maybe the best team in the NWA for the whole eight years they were there, but they were only NWA tag team champions once. And then finally going to the WWF, completing the trifecta, the first, last, and only team to hold the world tag team titles in the AWA, NWA, and the WWF. Uh, That's never going to be done before, and it will never be done again because obviously those two, uh, the other two brands don't exist, but that was unheard of. And what Joe Laurinaitis and Michael Hegstrand did was unheard of. When you put two big Minnesota dudes, former bouncers on the same team, who would know that they would revolutionize the sport of professional wrestling and make it uh, tag team wrestling uh, unlike any other before then. Um, can't say enough great things about him and his his brother Hawk. The Road Warrior pop is a real thing. Yeah. And what they, they did for me and they did for I'm gonna I'm gonna if I can, Dan, do it. I, I, I wanna speak as a black man if I could, just Go. for a second. No, okay. Gee, please. Uh, <laughs> if anybody is qualified on this podcast to speak as a black man. I I grew up in an all-black neighborhood, but we love wrestling. All the guys in my neighborhood. You did? We did. We and we, you know, Saturday afternoons, we, you know, watch our all of our favorite wrestling shows. And the Road Warriors came out. Yo, did you see the Road Warriors? Yo, we, I, the rest of my fellow crew that looked like me, never heard the the song Iron Man before. We didn't know what that was. <laughs> we thought yeah. that was a song made up just for the Road Warriors. Yeah. And then just the 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 pump, and then when the the Tommy Iommi um, guitar hit, and they hit the ring and breakneck speed, we would all go nuts. And these are and we you look at little black boys in the streets of Northwest Philadelphia cranking Iron Man as loud as we can, <laughs> thanks to the Road Warriors. And my buddy Tony. He thought the name of the group, he thought the song was called Black Sabbath and the group was called Iron Man. Okay. So I mean, he, that's great, man. That's yeah. awesome. But that's what the Road Warriors did for uh, a whole, I would say a whole litany of urban youth around the country that uh, he introduced us to, um, to Iron Man, to Black Sabbath and to that. And the, the entrances were just starting to happen in the, in the early 80s too. And marrying those two with that song made it a happening. And to the point where you had grown men screaming at the top of their lungs when that music hit. And to every person that was lucky enough to be at the Civic Center or at Veterans Stadium when they appeared at the Great American Bash or in any NWA arena throughout the South or in any territory in Memphis, Florida, the Carolinas, Georgia, St. Paul, Minnesota, Omaha, Nebraska, Hawaii, and Japan, that song remained the same. All the way in the Pacific Northwest, and we wrestled for Don Owen on his card with the AWA uh, champions. Bringing the Road Warriors in just gives you an automatic sellout. And you hit that song, and the place goes nuts. 
he will always be. He's, he's such a special part of so many people's memories. And for those who that only remember their WWF run with the red uh, shoulder pads and the dolls and and Rocco the the dummy and stuff, um, you guys got the you, you got the stick. I won't say you got the short end of the stick because they still had some good matches in them, but you didn't get the long end of the stick. You didn't get the business end of the Road Warriors. You got the tail end of the Road Warriors. Okay, and I say Road Warriors, I mean Animal and Hawk, not. Animal and Heidenreich or Hawk and Kensuke Sasaki and the Hellraisers and uh, everyone else or, or Crush. It was Animal and Hawk. Crush. It was Joe Laurinaitis and Michael Hegstrand. So, Crush. Joe, <laughs> we, we hardly knew you, but the, what, the, the ye that we did know, uh, we loved uh, with all of our hearts. Again, I'll say this now because uh, of his passing, they were the most influential tag team and the greatest tag team of all time. I always said, greatest tag team of all time, me, Midnight Express. Favorite tag team of all time, no doubt, Road Warriors. We'll say this, as a young kid, they terrified me. Yes. When they, they were so, the only thing in wrestling that legitimately terrified me, because I was too old to be terrified by The Undertaker or scared or nervous about The Undertaker. Mm-hmm. It was just, yeah. you know, Ghostbusters had come out. So I was like, oh, yeah, he's a dead guy. <laughs> Every, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, an older guy like you'd be like that guy. I hate him. Hey, but, look, yeah. it's Mark. It's Mark Calloway. Ooh, scary. <laughs> Ooh, scary. <laughs> Big Southern guy. He's so scary. <laughs> I didn't. Man, I was fifteen. But I was like, he's his name is Mark Calloway, and he's from Texas. Well, damn. <laughs> what a pop. Uh, and that was before the American Badass. This is the early days of the internet, where you start. Oh, I wonder what this person's real name. Son of oh. a bitch. <laughs> uh, but you know. The, the the smoky days of the NWA Saturday night TV show where the Road Warriors were there and they'd come mm-hmm. out and just beat the living crap out of yeah. everybody. Yeah. Every, yeah, we started early, Aaron. Sorry about that. I, I said it on Twitter. We had to start because uh, the debates were on at nine. We wanted to get it in before them. Sorry, bud. Uh, yeah, so the Road Warriors were just terrifying for me. Uh, I always understood it that the mm-hmm. reason because they knew they sucked at the time uh that sting and warrior did the face paint was because they wanted to get in with the road warriors and run right. matches with the road warriors and am i correct that's what i'm asking yeah. i'm asking yeah. the rest yeah. of the story in here <laughs> yeah yeah they were and and watts you know wanted to bring them in but because they were so in so dem- so much demand they couldn't accommodate, and by this, by the time that the Blade Runners became a thing, in the in the dying days in the mid south, the beginning of UWF, the Road Warriors were all, were, all, were exclusively NWA, and so they couldn't bring in the and this is before the merger, so he couldn't bring them in to uh, to work with them, uh, because and honestly because uh, the Blade Runners were so green and green as grass, the people that they did work with didn't want anything to do with them because they were so terrible. Yeah. And that's why, yeah. <laughs> that's why they were broken up. And, you know, Eddie Gilbert was, was assigned quote unquote to sting to a, to get him over and B to teach him, you know, to get with him and make him, you know, uh, to, to kind of like walk him through. Put what him under his wing. Like, this is what you need rolling. to do. This is what you yeah. never need to do ever again. Yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, a, a Blade Runner's Road Warriors match never materialized, and good for thank them God, because, uh, yeah, I, I did not even want to see the carnage that they would have left a very green <laughs> Steve Borden and Jim Helwig. Uh, that could have been their demise right then and there. <laughs> Steve Borden, 24 years old. <laughs> R.I.P. All right, rest in peace. <laughs> um, the Sting thing, just to transition between reminiscing about Road Warrior Animal, mm-hmm. little little segue here, and then to the final story of this this quick little episode. Um, you mentioned Sting and how green he was at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw. I I need your thoughts on this. Yeah, because I'm biased. I'm a Sting mark. You know, I've been a Sting mark since yeah, little boy. Yeah, since you were a little stinger. I was a little stinger. And I saw a tweet today, and I won't say who, because mm-hmm. I didn't argue with him. I was like, huh, that's certainly a hot take. That said that Sting wasn't good, and he was only as good as his opponents were. No, I don't, I don't agree with that. You don't agree uh, with that? No, I don't agree with that. I, I, Sting has had many a good match. And yeah, obviously, Ric Flair is the one that made Sting Sting. Sure. Oh yeah, and you and you consider the source. You can't have a bad match against Ric Flair, no matter what. That's true. And I, I would, I would say, I would contend that his matches with Ric Flair made Sting better. Oh God, um, yeah. But before, but you don't get a main event with Ric Flair unless you are good. You know, that that's what that person needs to know. That when Ric Flair wanted to have a a one hour match like with someone on the same day as to go head to head with the WWF. Remember, the first Clash of Champions happened on the same day as WrestleMania Four. That's right. Yeah. So Ric Flair needed a highlight match. Yeah. And what person was more over than Sting? But Flair wasn't going to work with just anyone to make that a main event. So you have to be good in order to get to the Ric Flair spot. So I don't agree with that statement at all. That that Sting wasn't good. It was only the opponents he he was in there with. We mentioned at the very beginning when he was greener than grass. His go from um, from the UWF, well, it started in Tennessee sure. with Jerry Lawler and, and Bill Dundee. They're the first ones that said, I can't work with these two idiots because it's like working with a bunch of tree trunks. So that's when he said, Bill Watts, please take them from me because I can't teach these, these idiots anything. And he almost got – and Jim Helwig got, on, got into it with a couple of people there already. Well, so, see, there's the difference right there. Sting was willing to learn, and Jim was like, yeah. I do it my way. Yeah, and so and and credit to to Sting and also to the Road Warriors. They started the same way. They got better, and they know they couldn't. They're they're they couldn't. As long as you're getting over, you're not going to beat up everyone. And you need to learn to sell and learn to work, and learn to 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 work a match. Right. And that, that's that's cool. I I didn't want I didn't yeah. want to make it yeah, about yeah. Sting because we're talking about no. Road Warrior Animal. But when you mentioned him, mm-hmm. I was like, I just needed I need a clarification what from. Oh, great uh, yeah. wrestling historian professor, sir. And, and, and this is coming from someone who's watched Sting from the beginning, from, you know, when he was in the Blade Runners. And because I, I would get tapes. I wanted to get all uh, – I, want, I wanted a compilation. I almost tried to make a compilation of all the Road Warrior knockoffs. And I had a VHS tape of the Zamboli Express, of the, the Mob Squad. The Zamboli Express I've never heard of. Ever. They're, they're in, in Florida, it was it was Bad Bad Leroy Brown and Ray Candy. And they... <laughs> but they reinvented themselves 
and they went back to their to they dropped those slave names and they invented the reinvented themselves. So, uh, Bad Bad Louis Brown became Elijah Akeem, and Ray Candy was Kareem Muhammad, and they come in the ring these camouflage uh, outfits with hats on, had big beards, and those are these are two round guys, and they would beat the crap out of everyone. And so they were the Florida version of the Road Warriors, and so they would go they would Dusty Rose and Blackjack Mulligan. Uh, Barry Windham and Steve Kern, they would just beat the crap out of all those guys. So even the wrestler even had a a uh, article, which tag team will dominate in the 90s, the Road Warriors or the Zambouille Express? And that was just their way to get Aptor's way of getting the Zambouille Express over. But I, I was making a, a VHS compilation of all the Road Warrior knockoffs, and the Blade Runners were on that. Um, so while having watched Sting go from that, to the UWF with um, with under Eddie Gilbert, and he also took a young Rick Steiner under his wing too, right. and made those guys uh, work. And they paid their dues, you know. You, the, the Sting and Dick, Sl- Dick Slater helped put Sting's head in the toilet, and then that kind of toughened him up uh, a little. But he and you with and if you're Sting, you're in a, in a federation with uh, legitimate workers like Chavo Guerrero and Buddy Landell and Eddie Gilbert. And you're also in there with legitimate tough guys like uh, Steve Dr. Death Williams and Buzz Sawyer and Dick Slater. And also you've got guys that have been there, done that and have the ins and outs of the business like Ted DiBiase and the Freebirds. So you have all these, these, uh, the influential people around you. You can't, if you don't learn, then you've got no business being a professional wrestler because obviously this was not Steve Borton's first love. He wanted to be a basketball player. Oh, yeah, I know, yeah. But now that he, he, he learned. So I don't agree with whoever said that statement. This, this thing was good. I'll tell you off here. Okay. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't people he wrestled. Yeah. yeah thank you. I, pre- I appreciate that. Cause I, if I, if it's me, I'd be like, Mm-mm. yeah, you're, you, you like a guy who couldn't work. I'm like, Oh, well, shows yeah. what I know. Uh, <laughs> So, with that transition, with Sting in mind, because Sting comes up a lot on this next topic, but it was announced. I haven't watched wrestling in weeks, uh, and I'm not saying that, like, I'm proud I haven't watched wrestling in weeks. I want to, damn it. Uh, (laughs) Now that the NBA Finals will probably be over by the end of this week and the NHL Finals are over, Uh I'm going to try to go back to it uh, past all the bull crap. But the WWE announced that on October 28th, that Wednesday, NXT will be bringing back the name Halloween Havoc. <laughs> now, your for you and I, yes, huh? Your first, your first match ever, or your first? That was my first show ever. It was 1989's okay. Halloween Havoc at the Philadelphia Civic Center, and the main event was the Thunderdome Cage match between uh, Flair and Sting versus Muda Terry Funk and, and Terry, Terry Funk. Funk. And the referee was Bruno goddamn San Martino. And it was mm-hmm. Gary Hart and Funk and Muda's corner. And Ole Anderson and Sting and Flair's corner. And what a cluster F ending. And that is the, <laughs> that is the, because, you know, the internet has this, and we all do it, this um, inflated, happier memory of things and how they actually were. Uh-huh. Uh, my example for wrestling is the attitude era? Everybody's like, that was the greatest era. And then you go back and watch some of those roles, and like, ninety percent, this is crap. This sucks. <laughs> what, 
what the what am I watching here? Then he goes to those nitros after Vince Thad. You're like, oh my god. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the same thing with Halloween Heaven. We put you know shows that are not longer on the air on this pedestal. But don't get mm-hmm. me wrong, the Attitude Era was the ratings. You can't argue with the ratings. No. But some of that stuff is really rough to go yeah. through. And Halloween Havoc, you say the, ha- the ha- word Halloween Havoc, you're like, man, those were the good days. And then you go back. <laughs> and you look at the endings and yeah. some of the crap that happened on Halloween Havoc. Uh, Aaron, I know you're in the room. and I wanted to mention this one first specifically because I know that you're not going to stick around the whole time. And I, I want you to hear this. The first one I want to mention and the thing you've got to do is go back and watch the last hour or the last 45 minutes of Halloween Havoc 95. I can hear Craig going, God damn it. <laughs> um, not only does the big show named the giant at the time have a monster truck wrestling sumo match, that's what they call it, against Hulk Hogan, who had just mm-hmm. found the dark side because of the, the dungeon of doom. Not only does Hulk Hogan pitch the big show off a roof mm-hmm. by mistake of the Cobo Hall Arena in Detroit. But he doesn't die and he comes back and one of the, we always call it the dusty ending or the WCW uh, cluster yeah. F ending. Mm-hmm. This is number one on the end of the top of, this should be on the top of just WCW finishes. Because I can't, I can't even ex- describe it, but Aaron, if you're listening to this and you really want to piss the girlfriend off, excuse me, the fiance off, watch this thing. <laughs> by the end, you're going to go. Even the, you know, a favorite part about that is that I just rewatched the end of it. Uh, Cause once they announced Halloween Havoc was coming back, mm-hmm. I put in the DVD of the VHS copy that I have of the best of WCW Halloween Havoc that came out in 99 cassette tape. Yeah. And the best part about that I always forget is and what's lost. What's lost is, and this is not a spoiler alert, it's it's over how many years now? 25? 25. 25 years. Uh, the SpongeBob meme, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the best part about it, Aaron, uh, and Craig, because you watched it live, probably, Yeah, is this is the moment that Jimmy Hart turns on Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm. After... W- and ignoring Hulk Hogan, the person, eh, we all know how we feel about that guy, Kirkhoff. Yeah. Past all that, how many uh, Jimmy was with him on and off for? Yeah, it started in in the uh, the uh, WrestleMania eight when he and uh, was managing uh, Hogan and Beefcake. Yeah. So all yeah. that time goes, and this is the mm-hmm. moment that Jimmy Hart turns on Hulk Hogan. And what's mm-hmm. funny is, is the camera misses that completely misses the hit that Jimmy hits because he hits the referee that's that's going to count the three on Hogan's win. So right. Jimmy nails the referee. You don't see it. It cuts back to the hard cam of everybody going, he did it. <laughs> he did it, Hulk. <laughs> he did it. And Hulk's like, what? Uh, and Jimmy's like, I didn't do it, buddy. Let's go get him. Then he hits Hogan with the belt. You find that. Then the giant, then the dungeon of doom comes out. Then the giant come, uh, gets up and puts him in a bear hug. Then Lex Luger comes out with the Macho Man, and then the camera cuts and misses Lex Luger hitting the Macho Man from behind and then beating the crap out of Macho Man. Then this guy, who he, 
later find out was Reese in the flock. He was a power plant guy. Comes dressed yeah. up as a mummy, but they call him the Yeti. The Yeti, excuse me, Tony Schiavone, the Yeti. Yeti. Yes. And he puts him in a bear hug around his neck. It looks like two guys dry humping Hogan in the middle of the ring. And that's how the show ends. And they award the title to uh, a big show at the end of that. So you watch that and you tell me. <laughs> I don't, I want to make this quicker because I know we have a lot on the rest of the rest of the story episode. I want to mention one more and then you, what comes to your mind, Halloween Havoc, gas. I'm going to mention a good moment, a bad moment slash with a good moment. Okay. Oh, God, I can fit two in there. Halloween Havoc 98. Mm-hmm. I'm not even. Gonna, I'm going to gloss over how bad Hogan Warrior Two was. Yes, the backstory, please. everything, how we get back. Don't watch that even for a laugh. It's bad. Mm-hmm. It's bad, bad, bad. The worst. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen in wrestling. It's bad, but worse than any death match. For those who don't like death match wrestling, this is worse. <laughs> this is a front to wrestling. I'm going to Jimmy Cornette the f out of this match. It sucks. You should never been seen again. That's how bad it is. However, the main event <laughs> is DDP versus Goldberg. And I know what you're going to say. People are going to go, Goldberg. Candidate for match of the year in both companies. Yes. DDP and Goldberg have a great just under 10-minute match. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. What you get out of Goldberg and DDP, fantastic. The bad part of this is <laughs> because... The pay-per-view is running long, and I think Warrior and uh, Warrior and Wogan? Jesus. Warrior and Wogan, yeah. I would have watched that match before watching those two. Every week. Every goddamn mm-hmm. week. It's another <laughs> one. Because Warrior and Hogan is so long and so bad, mm-hmm. it overruns the pay-per-view. The whole pay-per-view is running long, and that doesn't help. To where the introductions happen, DDP comes out, Goldberg comes out, and right before the lockup, lock the pay-per-view cuts. <laughs> and then it stops for a second and then you see the pay-per-view start over again for the replay <laughs> nobody saw that match live unless you're at the arena not one son of a bitch that was on pay-per-view saw that match nobody they replayed it the next night on nitro it's just a cluster f pay-per-view <laughs> ending the only one being worse is the yete and big show uh dry humping hogan what comes to your mind because i mentioned a good thing a uh, funny thing and a bad thing. When you think of Hall- uh, a Halloween Havoc, comes to mind, Craig. Uh, the, well, that show and your your which happened to be your first show, uh, Dan. Um, the Halloween Havoc at the at the Civic Center uh, because there's two. The, yeah, uh, the the star power there. Uh, what immediately comes to mind, um, especially in the light of the uh, the the Jay Uso uh, Roman Reigns bout from this past weekend, was the Samoan SWAT team. Um, another uh, loosely based Road Warrior knockoff, but when they appeared uh, in that um, match, uh, in the, when they appeared in, in Halloween Havoc, they did a fire dance before the coming to ringside. And my father, uh, who was a fireman for 20, 26 years, oh, no. uh, was the first one to point out oh, no. uh, there is not, not only is there no smoking in the Civic Center <laughs> at all. <laughs> There's not allowed to be any fire in that building whatsoever, period. So he – and knowing all that because he was part of the people that you know instilled the code in the Civic Center uh, back when he was a fireman, back when the Sixers games would go there, would, would have their 
when he would go, he would tell other people not to, to put the, not only enforce a no smoking rule, but make sure that anyone doesn't even do it in the entranceway, <laughs> be outside the building. So when I saw the fire going, that's the first thing I saw. My dad just went ballistic. It's like, are you, are you serious? Is anyone not going to say anything? You so, and I had both the same experience growing up as a kid where we couldn't go anywhere where our fathers didn't count the alarms in the ceiling. Mm-hmm. or didn't observe every fire hazard that was in a room we were in. Oh, that's bad. Yeah. That's going to go up. Oh, we're going to die okay. because of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that. That was my initial. And the, the, what, and the uh, Hogan giant Yeti thing was like a, a monkey effing a football. You just don't know what to look at. What's the... Uh, yeah, it's just... Nah, that's my... <laughs> The only other one I can think of that had the potential of being really good and then they effed it up was, uh, I think it was Havoc 91, Sting and Sid Vicious Yeah, that go to the back and all of a sudden Sting picks up Sid Vicious and gets covered for the yeah, one, two, three. And then, yes. of course, terrible directing makes you miss the fact that Sting was tied to the back and it was actually Barry Windham dressed as Sting. Oh, okay, so fucking <laughs> Yes. So, well, so when I think of Halloween Havoc, I, I unfortunately I don't think of a lot of great. Uh, just the name brings up invokes good good memories, and and even um, just the WCW having good matches. Uh, Road Warriors and and Steiners. I think it was the the Iron Man uh, tournament they had. It was Road Warriors, right. Steiner, Doom, and uh, somebody else. Dude, rewatching WCW and seeing how. House- long that doom wasn't around for it actually aggravates me yeah oh i did like ah, okay yeah <laughs> it's like what the hell happened they're done already yeah but, <laughs> but yeah but I, i'm and i saw them i i know that that made your heart light up um but I, with nxt and and i'm not expecting any they had the name halloween havoc i'm not expecting oh, any sure. WCW shenanigans and an NXT show. Well, but just <laughs> having the name Halloween Havoc back, it does my heart good. I, I'm I'm up for nostalgia. So. I uh, and Harry picks on me about it, and rightfully so. Uh, it's the only real thing that he picks on me about that actually bothers me. Is that I'm kidding. I don't care. <laughs> um, when when Vince, knowing that Vince had shows planned as WCW and then didn't go through with them, yeah. Uh, bothers me, and I'm I'm okay with them bringing the names back anyway. Yeah, that was just mm-hmm. my my two cents that nobody cares about. Hello, gentlemen and ladies. My name is Craig Lagans with my able co-host Dan Calachico. This is a special edition of the Wrestling Historian. We've got a lot to cover. There have been a lot of great happenings in the last few weeks in professional wrestling history. I'm here to walk you through it. To walk you through a time when there was wrestling in all 50 states, when there were territories governed by different promoters, back when medical facilities were called hospitals, back when titles were called belts, and back when sports entertainment was professional wrestling. We're going to start all the way back September 17th, Dan, one of the most important dates in professional wrestling history. In Kansas City, Kansas, it was in a match, the main event with special referee Lou Fez. Dusty Rhodes lost 
the NWA Heavyweight Championship to Ric Flair in what would be Ric Flair's first ever title win. Ric Flair's yeah. long, his first title win, September 17th, 1981, in Kansas City in what may have been the smallest ring in professional wrestling history, Dan. Uh, listeners of HIAC Talk Radio right now, um, go to YouTube and watch the Ric Flair match with Dusty Rhodes where he won his first NWA title. And let me know if that is indeed the smallest ring you've ever seen in your life. I don't know how they did it or what they did, but I've seen backyard wrestling shows with a bigger ring than the one I saw in Kansas City, September 17th, 1981. Um, but that was Ric Flair's very first world championship when he defeated Dusty Rhodes, September 17th, 1981, making him a made man. Ric Flair has made no secret of the fact that he hates going to Kansas City, possibly because, well, he, in his words, there's no nightlife after midnight. There's nothing to do in Kansas City. But I also think that the reason why he hates Kansas City, even though he won his first world championship there, was the size of the ring. It was so freaking small. I can't emphasize that enough how small that ring was. But September 17th, 1981, big day in history. September 17th, 1986, another big date in history for a different reason. No titles were won or lost on this date, but on this date, September 17th, 1986, at a WWF TV taping in Salisbury, Maryland, one of the most greatest uh, combination of cosmic forces came together on this date, September 17th, 1986, a WWF TV taping in Salisbury, Maryland. It was someone's decision to make sure that the WWF commentating team was Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan. Ah. That was their first time together. And while there have been great duos, some say before or since then, you JR and King, uh, Jesse and Gorilla, but Bobby Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon, pound for pound, word for word, the best duo commentators in professional wrestling history. It's all well and good that King and, and Lawler get props. They're great. Uh, and any other combination, we're fine. No, they're not better than Bobby <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a discussion I'm up for having because there's not really much to discuss. There's, you could discuss who's number two. You could, we could, you could discuss, exactly. You could discuss who comes in after Bobby Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon. Nothing brings me more joy. I was saying on the hockey podcast, I say, don't watch wrestling or any sports with commentary on. Mm -hmm. Watch it on mute. I'm not interested in hearing commentary anymore. We could debate on how good wrestling used to be and is or vice versa or isn't. Blah, 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 blah. I don't like most of the commentary. It's terrible. <laughs> Nothing brings me more joy than going through the old shows, but specifically ones with Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby the Brain Heenan. There is not a close second. There's not. No. no. Um, and they made so much magic together for such a long period of time, for a good uh, 12 years or uh, nine years before um, 
uh, before Bobby left uh, to go to WCW, but his relationship with Gorilla never stopped, never ceased. Uh, one of the most uh, endearing moments in wrestling history on t- in TV when Bobby said goodbye to Gorilla when Bobby was in WCW and uh, Gorilla, you know, stayed with WWE and him leaving was a big blow for all of us, but for, for Bobby more especially because those two were synonymous, you know. Um, you, you, you couldn't have, like you just said, you, you, having a, a, a match with Bobby and Gorilla, and it could be uh, Barry Horowitz versus the Brooklyn Brawler, but having those two call it, you know, made them <laughs> That was a very nice. <laughs> but I could, I could watch that match as long as Gorilla and Bobby were calling it. It, yeah. it didn't matter. You know, it's it's what those guys did. They exactly. made the magic, Absolutely and they true. were they were put together for the first time, September seventeenth, nineteen eighty six. Also, September seventeenth, a big day in professional wrestling because of what it wrought. God, can I just back up for just a second? Something sure. I just want to touch upon this for a second. The uh-huh. way one people, you know, especially in twenty twenty, I'll make this quick. Talk about bad feelings and people leaving wrestling companies because of the terrible S that's going on. Mm-hmm. And the way Bobby left raw WWF mm-hmm. um, by having gorilla be the one to throw him out. <laughs> yeah. is one of the funniest bittersweet and touching things I've ever seen. How that moment could be just a little bit touching when he puts his, he pulls his jacket collar up and just yeah. salutes and leaves after <laughs> Gorilla assaults him and chucks him out the door mm-hmm. and throws all his crap at him. It couldn't have been anybody else. I know it's been touched mm-hmm. upon before, but I just wanted to point that out that it it couldn't have gone any other way. It had to be Gorilla. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I no, no. I needed to mention that. Yeah, well, and it needed to be said. I and I completely forgot about that, Dan. You're absolutely right. Uh, but that was the uh, – and I don't think Bobby would would want it any other way than to have Gorilla be the one to, to send him off nope. because, like I said, they were synonymous with each other. They created more magic and more good times, and, and Bobby would say it, nothing against the people he worked with in, in uh, WCW that no one was like Gorilla. And even when he said it in his Hall of Fame speech when he came back to be inducted uh, – and he had one of the great speeches of all time, but he said, I, I still miss Gorilla, man. I, I only I, wish – my I, one wish was that Gorilla was here to see this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah they made magic. So, but and September – don't 10th, have friends like that in wrestling either. No. Yeah. And especially not Bobby Heenan. Nothing against Bobby Heenan, and he wasn't uh, – not that he was ever a bad person to anyone, but he didn't have a lot of friends. Um, a lot of guys like being around Bobby. And Bobby managed some of the greatest people of all time, but the amount of people that Bobby called friends, you could fit on one hand and maybe a thumb. Yep. He's smart probably that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yes, but he and he and Gorilla, they had something special. And we all got to see it um, a lot, and we were all grateful to have seen it. Uh, also, uh, this last thing on this date, September 17th, the only other part of greatness that happened uh, was 59 years ago on that date, uh, the second greatest manager of all time. We were t- talking about Bobby Heaton, Heenan, and we could always debate who number two was. Well, in my opinion, number two was born September 17th. Happy belated 59th birthday to James E. Jim Cornette. 
September 18th, uh, 1956. Oh, I, we can go off on a whole other tangent on Jim Cornette. I yeah, guess. that's why I was like, we, just let, we can go. We can go. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, but happy, but happy belated, James. Hey, you know what? I'll say this. I don't care. Uh, again, we, we've said it about ignoring. We're not going to talk about the, the last two years of social media for um, Rob Warrior Animal. I'm not going to talk about the last two years of his podcast. As far as wrestling managers, uh, I don't think there was anybody better either. No. No. He was he was a man of Louisville lip. And you want to go back and watch. Just go back. Just YouTube Jim Cornette interviews. Jim Cornette promos, period. And you can just uh, you spend a whole day doing that. And I encourage any indie wrestler, take notes. Watch. Especially if you want to be a heel, watch Jim Cornette. That's all you need to do. You can't beat Jim Cornette, but just watch him. Mm-hmm. Um, September 18th, 1956, Baltimore, Maryland. Dan, there was a tournament, a women's tournament, to crown a new women's champion. Uh June June Byers, the previous champion, had retired, and in the tournament final, uh, Judy Grable lost to the fabulous Mula. And because June Byers didn't re- come out of retirement, the fabulous Mula was awarded the championship, wow. the World Women's Championship. And that was in 1956. Mula would hold that belt for another 28 years. Well, the longest still and will always be the longest continuous championship run in professional wrestling history, male or female. No one has held the belt for 28 years straight. So Fabulous Mula held it from September 1956, September 18, 1956 to January of 1984, losing it to Wendy Richter. Damn. Dan, you mentioned Halloween Havoc in our previous HIAC Talk Radio as being your first event. Yes. Well, September 20th, 1975, the most important date in my professional wrestling life because that was my first event. At the beautiful air-conditioned Philadelphia Spectrum, September 20th, 1975, I got to see my first wrestling match ever with the main event being Bruno San Martino, the champion, defending against George the Animal Steel in a Sicilian stretcher match where the winner had to be taken, the loser had to be taken out on a stretcher with special guest referee Andre the Giant. <laughs> wow. So that was my first match. All right. Touche. <laughs> I mean, mine was, on a, mine was in a cage that caught fire that had to be put out by <laughs> Great Moon. What the hell do I know? Uh, it was about uh, 18,000 there to see, uh, to see the great Bruno. I also got to see uh, Haystacks Calhoun uh, go against Waldo Von Erich. He was getting the crap beat out of him, but Ivan Putski came and made the save. Uh, Bugs and McGraw beat Pete Sanchez. Um, and Manuel Soto uh, beat... Uh, Pete Reeves, but seeing Bruno for the first time, um, nothing like it. And he'll even just, it was my first time seeing Andre too. And just seeing Andre walk through the crowd oh, wow, was yeah. absolutely awe-inspiring. And I was on the first level and my dad took me and my brother and he was good friends with uh, Charlie Abel, who was a longtime Spectrum security guard. 
In fact, he was interviewed at the last basketball game ever for the Sixers at the Spectrum, Charlie Abel was. And he, my dad would knock on the door, Charlie Abel would let him in. And I'm walking back there with my, with my dad and I see the wrestlers walking back and forth. Don Cronaldo once bumped into me once when he wrestled in the WWF in 1984. And, but what my dad did, he asked Charlie and he came back with all these autographs uh, on these on blank pieces of paper that my dad, that Charlie Abel got from my dad to give to me. So I had Bruno San Martino's autograph. I had Andre the Giant's autograph. I had uh, Haystacks Calhoun's autograph. Just all in these blank pieces of paper. But I got all that September 20th, 1975, 45 years ago, Dan. I attended my old. first wrestling match. Yes, I was I was two. I was but a baby. I was a wee lad. <laughs> oh, my God. A, you know, 31 years I was. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> that was September 20th, 1975, the day my the most important date in my wrestling historian history, my first time. Never forget your first Never time. Never forget. You beat me to it. Shit. Uh, September 22nd, 1980, Madison Square Garden, WWF headquarters or WWF mainstay. Well, it was about that time that there would be another Super Bowl of wrestling. Harley Race had been appearing on WWF TV telling everyone, I've been all around this great country of ours. I went to Japan. I went to Kansas City, St. Louis, and finally I've had to come here to face him on his his terms in his backyard. So Bob Backlund, I'm challenging you. You claim to be the World Wrestling Federation champion. Well, I am the NWA champion and I am the best wrestler on God's green earth. So on September 22nd, 1980, in Bob Backlund's backyard, as Harley Race put it, the WWF heavyweight champion Bob Backlund took on the NWA heavyweight champion Harley Race. Wow. The first, last, and only time that two world champions faced off against each other in Madison Square Garden. Harley Race was trapped in a sleeper hold by Bob Backlund, but Harley grabbed the referee and pulled him into Bob Backlund, causing a disqualification, thus saving Harley's title and maybe saving Bob from getting his ass kicked legitimately from Harley Race. But that match ended in a disqualification. That will be the last, first, last, and only time that a the WWF champion and the NWA champion would wrestle each other. Just a shout out from the great Harry Barnett saying hi to to you, Craig. Hello, great one. Thank you for joining us. I'm just uh, the messenger. The, I'm not here for any <laughs> other particular reason. On the same date, September twenty second, nineteen eighty four. Also at Madison Square Garden, uh, two debuts. Uh, Jesse Ventura was supposed to wrestle Hulk Hogan, uh, but because of the lung problems that he had that we now know was caused by Agent Orange and what started the end of his wrestling career, he would announce his re retirement a month later. But substituting for him would be Big John Studd uh, to face Hulk Hogan. And John Studd would be debuting his brand new manager, making his WWF debut, the aforementioned Bobby Heenan. Oh, geez, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, so Bobby Heenan's WWF debut took place September 22nd, 1984. 
one of what 40 people to leave AWA be- yeah uh, on a cold way because um uh Vern wouldn't do business yeah because okay. and the thing is Dan we talked in a previous um our previous HIAC talk radio we were giving a tribute to Road Warrior Animal the Road Warriors after Hogan had left it was the Road Warriors when they became to the AWA that rejuvenated the AWA so they were selling out the all the arenas that Hogan once did after he left a year prior so had Vern knew how to do business you not only would have Hogan as your AWA heavyweight champion you would have the Road Warriors as your AWA tag team champions you probably still and have you the would NWA. have NWA. Yes. <laughs> and you would have maybe. nonstop sellouts, maybe. But you definitely would have the two of the hottest acts in the business. Yeah. But yeah, that was start of the mass exodus of the AWA going to the uh, WWF. Bobby Heenan, I mean, first Hogan, and then Okerlin, and then Heenan. Next thing you know, Dave Schultz. Next thing you know, it's the Rockers, and it's Kurt Henning, and yeah. And on it goes. <laughs> Uh, September 23rd, 1987, back to the WWF in beautiful Hershey, Pennsylvania, for a special taping of Saturday night's main event. Debatable. (laughs) But this would be the Saturday night's main event, highlighted by Randy Savage going up against the Intercontinental Champion, the Honky Tonk Man. Now, this was a heel versus heel match, but... In the end, it would come out that the uh, the Hart Foundation would attack Randy Savage. Honky Tonk Man would get out of his trusted guitar. Not a gimmick guitar, by the way. Actual real guitar. And <laughs> ash it over the head of Randy Savage. Uh, Elizabeth would be knocked down, would run to the back and with, with fans telling, get Hogan, get Hogan. And Elizabeth would return with Hulk Hogan. And Hulk Hogan would go to the ring to help out Randy Savage. And at one point, that meant all four champions were in the ring at the same time because Honky Tonk Man was the Intercontinental Champion. The Hart Foundation were the World Tag Team Champions, all managed by Jimmy Hart. And Hogan, the World Champion, came in to fight off um, the rest of them. And he and Randy Savage would make peace, shake hands in the middle of the ring, would set up the Mega Powers, set up an amazing run of business. Uh, and eventually making Savage the uh, heavyweight champion after Hogan would leave. But Savage's face turn, what happened on this Saturday night's main event, taped September 23rd, would air uh, later on uh, uh, in a couple of weeks and uh, to big fanfare. But I think I remember telling you about when this match was being talked about, uh, Savage was supposed to win the title uh, at this main event. And uh, Honky Talk Man uh, said no. <laughs> oh, he, all right. Well, they were yeah, – Honky Talk Man, the way he tells it, he and Savage were invited over to Vince's house to talk about the um, the ending to the Saturday Night's Main Event. Saturday Night's Main Event was doing great numbers. And when he got there, he and Savage were on a couch, and Vince was in a chair. And Savage and Vince just were speaking exclusively, talking about what they were going to do with the title and where they were going to go, and what appearances they were going to make. And Wayne Ferris, a hockey talk man, is like, I might as well not have even been there, because they weren't talking to me at all. They were already talking about what they were going to do with the title after uh, they were, after I was going to do the job. And 
what Wayne Ferris always did. He didn't mind get, in house shows, tag team matches. He get pinned left and right. He never got pinned on TV. That was the one sure. thing he wouldn't do was not get pinned on TV. And to the point where he was so fed up with what was going on, it was him before Medusa, before Hall and Nash, that was talking about going to the NWA with the Intercontinental belt. Because he had talked to his friend Jim Cornette about how they were doing him up north and how he wasn't happy. And he cooler heads prevailed and honky tonk Wayne Ferris was able to convince him not to drop the belt, but at the same time put Savage over, which is what they did, and which was turned out best for business. Savage was so popular and so over he didn't need a belt. And uh, he would look, go on to be the uh, world champion in that great run, thanks to Hogan. But thanks to that face turn that happened September 23rd, 1987. And we always talk about great champions. When you talk about Intercontinental Champions, Randy Savage, his name is up there, and, but only held it once. Wow. And that was it. Uh, September 23rd, 1994. Another great day in wrestling. Well, depending on who you ask. Uh, <laughs> But after a three-year hiatus, Dan, uh, September 23rd, 1994, was the return of the UWF. The MGM Grand in Vegas would be the site of the return of Herb Abrams and his special boots that he promised would shock the world. Um, and it's been made famous in the Dark Side of the Ring documentary. I would have made him eat those shoes if I was any one of those wrestlers. <laughs> That's it? Come here. He had the great Blackjack Mulligan on color commentary. And you're going to talk about batches that were bad. I know we talked about previous on our previous HIAC episode, uh, Hogan and Warrior 2. Uh, nothing like um, Cactus Jack versus Jimmy Snuka, the double countout bout at the, U- <laughs> the UWF. Uh, this UWF show at the MGM Grand in Vegas that did next to no business, uh, not as far as uh, live crowd and certainly not in pay-per-view numbers, but I had to include the return of Herb Abrams because he's such a colorful character. But September 23rd, 1994 would That's be That's a good word last. for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> would be his last uh, pay-per-view. Uh, September 24th, uh, happy belated 44th birthday to the Billion Dollar Princess, Stephanie McMahon. Uh, September 26th, 1977, big day. Even Vince McMahon says, oh, I'll never forget that night. He talks about it glowingly. We're going to go back to Madison Square Garden, Dan. 26,125 in attendance. That includes the more than 2,000 that were next door that couldn't get into a sold-out Madison Square Garden. They sold out the Felt Forum where you can watch Madison Square Garden shows on closed-circuit TV. Wow. To see the main event coming all the way up from Florida, the American Dream Dusty Rhodes taking on the World Wrestling Federation champion superstar Billy Graham. You watch wow. this match on WWE Network. I'll watch it just for the hell of it, just because I remember reading about it in the After magazines. The pictures were glorious. 
and the buzz with Dusty Rose coming into Madison Square Garden to fight superstar Billy Graham, the crowd when he comes out, and to hear Vince McMahon on commentary, and there's a dream, the American dream, Dusty Rose is here. And he came with his long flowing robe. He did his alley shuffle. Crowd went nuts. Superstar comes out. Crowd's still going nuts. Those two guys put on a show that would be tamed by today's standards. <laughs> but seeing those two in the ring together and just to hear Vince talk about it in such glowing terms, that was a highlight of professional wrestling for me as a Ute uh, and for just wrestling in general. Uh, but all thanks to Eddie Graham for having a handshake deal with Vince and exchanging talent. Dusty was being seen on championship wrestling from Florida here in the Northeast. So we were already familiar with him. So by the time he came to Madison Square Garden, he had only wrestled a few matches on, uh, on WWF TV. But the place was sold out, 26125 to see this guy that only seen wrestle on TV. But the draw of Dusty Rhodes, talking about what he's going to do to Superstar. Once I get my hands on you, I'm going to play dog on you. I'm just going to wait till you walk by and it's going to pounce. <laughs> and see all the peoples, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Because, see, I've, I wined and dined with kings and queens, and I slept on alleys and, park, and eating pork and beans. Ain't nothing wrong with eating pork and beans. Everybody out here is eating some pork and beans. But the dream telling you right now. I know what it's like. Just because I drive a big car now don't make me bad, Jack. And the place, the, the interviews that he had leading up to this. But anyway, September 26, 1977, big day. Dusty versus Superstar sold out Madison Square Garden. Uh, just uh, one of my favorite memories in professional wrestling history. Uh, September 28th, the very next day, 1985. We're talking about territories coming together and, and how it doesn't happen anymore. September 28th, 1985, Comiskey Park in Chicago, home of the White Sox, the AWA Super Clash. Now, in order to combat the juggernaut that would the WWF was at this point, this is the same year WrestleMania just happened six months ago. Had six had happened six months earlier, so the counter the AWA had the Super Clash, and not only did they have the AWA wrestlers there, that you had representatives from the NWA, World Class, All Japan, Memphis, all on one card. You had the World Class Heavyweight Champion Kerry Von Erich going up against Gorgeous Jimmy Garvin. That was a World Class feud. He had the AW, Greg Gagne, Kurt Henning, and Scott Hall going up against Nick Bockwinkle, Ray Stevens, and Larry Zabisco. Jeez. Two of the three of the greatest AWA wrestlers of all time, Bockwinkle and Stevens, and Larry Zabisco on one side. Jeez. You had the NWA six-man tag team champions. Ivan and Nikita Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev going up against the three greatest AWA wrestlers of all time, Baron Von Raschke, Bruiser and Crusher. So you had the Koloffs against Crusher and Bruiser in one match. The AWA Tag Team Champions, the Road Warriors, remember them? Went up against the Freebirds. And this would be the only time the Freebirds would wear the paint. They came up in the Rebel paint, uh, face paint. Good. The only time they ever wore Good that. Cho Good choice. 
<laughs> but sure, yeah, they do it in Chicago. I'm sure I don't, that wouldn't have. I don't know how that would have played if they had did that in Georgia. But so the and also the AWA heavyweight champion Rick Martell went to a double countout against Stan Hansen, and the NWA champion Rick Flair defeated Magnum TA. So wow. you had the. NWA champion, the AWA champion, the AWA tag team champions, the NWA six-man champions, world-class champion. I always thought, Dan, I thought if Magnum was ever going to go over, he should have gone over on that show. You know, it's funny. You go back and watch this old stuff, and we talk about, you know, in retrospect, how good Magnum TA was and how he would have been if he didn't have that car accident. But they certainly held that trigger on, on him long enough. Yeah, that's why. That's it doesn't why make I thought, any goddamn sense when people no. say that. I'm like, but right, why? What are you waiting for? I thought he should have gone over on that show because it would have been an AWA show, and he could have made it up on an NWA show at any of the big houses that they were drawing, especially uh, going into uh, that season and going into um, '86. Uh, but they didn't. And uh, in Magnum's uh, accident, what happened in '86? But uh, yeah, the AWA Super Clash, and that will be the only time that you get that many uh, promoters or that many uh, federations together for one card, because you know. But yeah, but also if they did it the AWA show, they could have just swept it under the rug if it was like, eh, wasn't that great? Yeah. Didn't yeah. make any sense. Whatever. But oh, uh, uh, but uh, uh, Ric Flair went over Magnum clean and. Uh, the AWA champion Rick Martell and Stan Hansen. Yeah, you see, everybody was in a rush to put him over. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, the Road Warriors, though, they uh, they actually were pinned by the Freebirds, but the re- this decision was reversed. So the Road Warriors uh, won the bout, but the Freebirds always say that we beat the Road Warriors in their hometown of Chicago. That was September 28th, 1985. The very next night, Dan, September 29th, in St. Paul, Minnesota, the Road Warriors would actually lose the AWA Tag Team titles to Jimmy Garvin and Steve Regal with help from Michael Hayes of the Freebirds. And that would end the 16-month reign of the Road Warriors as AWA Tag Team Champions. And while they were AWA Tag Team Champions, they did more than any other World Tag Team Champions had ever done. They had wrestled the NWA Tag Team Champions. They'd wrestled in Georgia. They'd wrestled in Florida. They'd wrestled in Texas. They wrestled in Memphis as the AWA Tag Team Champions. But now with the belt off of them, they could sign exclusively with the NWA. But that reign that ended September 29th, 1985, would be the longest reign that the Road Warriors would ever have of any tag team title that they ever held. It was 15 months they held it. In the AWA, drawing record crowds. <laughs> but on that same day, Dan, while that was happening in St. Paul, Minnesota, while the Road Warriors were losing the AWA tag team titles in Chicago, on that same day, Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant would defeat John Studd, Big John Studd, and King Kong Bundy with Mr. T in their corner. Also on that same day, while the in St. Louis, the WWF held a card with the uh, British Bulldogs taking on the Hart Foundation, Junkyard Dog taking on Terry Funk, Don Morocco going against Ricky Steamboat, and Roddy Piper would face Paul Orndorff. 
And if that wasn't enough, and by God, don't you think it ought to be, on that same date, September 29th, in Atlanta, in the NWA, Ric Flair would defeat Nikita Koloff in a steel cage. After the bout, the Koloffs. Now remember, the Koloffs were just in the, in the AWA the night before in Comiskey Park in Chicago. And now they were back in Atlanta, seconding Nikita Koloff. After Flair had beaten Nikita, Ivan Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev came in to attack Ric Flair. Who makes the save but Dusty Rhodes? Dusty Rhodes comes in, drives off the, the Russians with some help from Ric Flair. And you would think Rick would be appreciative. No. 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 Because then come Ole and Arn Anderson, and they attack Dusty Rhodes. Flair holds out his leg. They take turns coming off the top of it, and they break the leg of Dusty Rhodes. Well, so many others tried to get into the ring. The Rock and Roll Express, Magnum TA, Sam Houston. Couldn't get in the ring to help Dusty Rhodes. Almost to the point where it was like Memphis all over again with fans crowding the ring, yeah. rioting, trying to get through to help out Dusty and to get to the heels. Arn Anderson calls it a, a very harrowing experience uh, that night, September 29th, when uh, Ole and Arn and Ric Flair together teamed up to beat uh, Dusty Rhodes. But that, my dear Dan, would be the beginning of the formation of the Four Horsemen. I was going to say, that forever would change professional wrestling as we know it. Everybody, you know, talks about all these other events and things that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. happen to change the course of professional wrestling, but the Four Horsemen is a catalyst of a lot of things. Yes. Uh, especially came back in the 90s during the Attitude Era. Most definitely, where everyone needed to be in a stable. And, um, Horsemen were um, part of that. They, before the Freebirds, I mean, since the Freebirds, the Horsemen were the most successful stable in professional wrestling. But speaking of professional wrestling, Dan, on that, that all this happened on the same day, September 29th, AWA in St. Paul, Road Warriors lose the tag team title, WWF Chicago, Hogan and Andre with Mr. T beat John Studd and King Kong Bundy, St. St. Louis, <laughs> Piper and Orndorff. Bulldogs and Heart Foundation, and in Atlanta in the NWA, Ric Flair, Ole and Arn Anderson would jump on Dusty. All that happened on the same day. That was back when wrestling was wrestling. In NWA, AWA, and the WWF, major things happened all on the same day. Uh, on that, also on that date, I told you about Ole and Arn, uh, and Rick beginning the formation of the Four Horsemen. Well, exactly two years later, September 29th, 1987, two of the four horsemen, Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson, would defeat the Rock and Roll Express to win their first World Tag Team title. Wow. And I always thought they were just a fluke team because the Rock and Roll Express were, were an established team, and Arn and Tully were just two of the four horsemen, but boy, was I wrong. Uh, Tully and Arn would hold multiple world tag team championships, um, set multiple um, sellouts, would uh, repeat their success in the WWF, and would spawn a great deal of imitators, and one of which is called FTR, but their first title was September 29th, 1987. 
September 30th, 1960, maybe the most important date in Japanese wrestling history, Dan, because of what happened. It wasn't that big a deal, but the Japanese Wrestling Association had a card in Tokyo, Japan. But on that particular card for the JWA was that the two most important figures in Japanese wrestling history would both be making their debuts, having their first match on the same day on the same card. September 30th, 1960 was the debut of both Giant Baba and Antonio Inoki. Wow. All right. Baba would go on, obviously, to uh, start All Japan Wrestling, giving a lot of both um, Japanese and American wrestlers not only their start, their big break, and Antonio Inoki would do the same for New Japan. So two of the biggest, maybe the two most influential, most important figures in Japanese wrestling history would make their debuts on the same card on the same day, um, January 30th, 1960, 60 years ago. On that same date, January 30th, I'm sorry, September 30th, 1972. Wait a second, hold on. We're jumping ahead. What happened? (laughs) September 30th, 1972. It was a great idea that didn't really go as well as it should have gone. Filed out under great ideas at the time. But yeah, but uh, it was September 30th, 1972 was the first showdown at Shea. The then Worldwide Wrestling Federation champion Pedro Morales would defend his title against the guy that many people thought never really always considered their champion. And it was the first time two faces would face off against each other, maybe kind of put it to rest. Pedro Morales would face Bruno Sammartino at Shea Stadium. September 30th, 1972. You know, Pedro had beaten Ivan Koloff. Ivan had beaten Bruno. Bruno had just started coming back. So people would say, well, who would win, Pedro or Bruno? And I always loved Bruno, and I, but I love Pedro too. So they decided to have a showdown at Shea Stadium, September 30th, 1972. Well, I say it was a great idea at the time. Uh, Farmer's Almanac wasn't what it was or what it is now. So uh, they got a lot of rain uh, that day. So um, it ended up, they ended up drawing as many people as they would draw if they had to match in Madison Square Garden. Uh, They had about 22,508 fans, which is nothing to sneeze at, but considering Shea Stadium holds 60,000, it looks kind of sparse. And because of the rain, it kept folks out. Anyway, Pedro Morales and Bruno Sammartino went to a 75-minute draw. And that would be the first showdown at Shea. There have only been three, Pedro versus Bruno. And the second one would be Bruno versus Stan Hansen, his first match after his broken neck. And the last would be Bruno versus Larry Zabisco, the revenge steel cage match that made Larry Zabisco a star. So all... Three showdowns at Shea would be highlighted by Bruno Sammartino. Interesting note, Dan, when Bruno was first pitched this uh, the idea of having a, uh, a match at Shea Stadium, he wanted to fight Andre. Bruno always wanted to wrestle Andre. 
I didn't know that. Yes. He thought they could have had a, a lot of – he thought they could have done a program together. But back then, a, a face wrestling a face was a special attraction. Oh, yeah. I was going to say they couldn't have done it because they're both – ah, shit. Yeah. <laughs> and you're, you're also – you have two of them, your biggest moneymakers at the time. Boo! But, uh, yeah. But uh, Bruno had made, made no secret that he always wanted to fight the, to face Andre. He said that was the one opponent that he uh, – he wished he could have gotten the ring with. Wow, that would I have think been that, interesting. Huh? Yeah, that would have been that would have been the first. That would have been the first time Andre would have been slammed. Wow, like I, I couldn't even imagine what they would do. That yeah. wow, hmm. he had an idea. Uh, October third, uh, I mentioned earlier in this very uh, wrestling story and broadcast that the uh, Saturday night's main event that featured Randy Savage and the Honky Tonk Man. With the savage face turn and the uh, Hulk Hogan helping out and the guitar shot and Elizabeth and blah, 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 blah. Uh, well, it aired October 3rd and it did a 9.7 rating. Wow. Yes. 9.7. Meanwhile, Brian Alvarez are tweeting, they did 2 million. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Good job. Uh, that was October 3rd, 1987. October 5th, 1985, another Saturday Night's Main event. Uh, it was a weak card to me. Hogan defeated Nikolai Volkov in a flag match. Uh, Piper and Orndorff went to a double countout. And uh, King Kong Bundy and Big John Studd, there's that team again, uh, beat Andre the Giant and Tony Atlas after uh, Hogan made the save. But the big news of that particular Saturday Night's main event was, of course, the wedding of Uncle Elmer. <laughs> sure. It was a legitimate wedding, too. They were they were married on live TV. The priest and everything. So that wasn't uh, that wasn't an angle. That was, They were legitimately married. Amazing. And uh, at the end, Jesse Ventura's face went to the wedding cake. Ha, ha, ha. Wholesale <laughs> after. And, uh, but that did an 8.3 reading. Um, that was October fifth. You know, uh, you know what I'm gonna do for now on, buddy. What are you gonna do for now on? Okay, so I just looked up Uncle Elmer, Stanley Fraser. Yes. And I always, uh, uh, you know, everybody's like, "Happy on my birthday on August 16th. Happy birthday, Dan. Happy birthday." And I'm like, "Yeah, great." Well, who do you share a birthday with? I'm like, "Well, Madonna, but also Elvis died on this day." From now on, I'm gonna say that I share a birthday with Uncle Elmer and have to stare at me while I go, "Who the hell is that?" <laughs> just say. <laughs> I mean, Plowboy Frazier. No, no, <laughs> Plowboy Frazier. Excuse me. <laughs> or if you were going to – Kamala too, okay? Does that make it easier for you? Here's the other cool thing about – the funny thing about it. He was born in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Mississippi, yeah. Well, that's how he was when – he, when he came to the Spectrum, Dan, that's how he was announced. From Philadelphia, Mississippi. Mississippi. <laughs> ah. Oh, you son of a bitch. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. But yeah, October 5th, the wedding of uh, the late, great Stan Plowboy Frazier. Uh, October Plowboy. 5th. Uh, Plowboy. <laughs> so yeah. awesome. Such a name. <laughs> yeah. He wrestled. Well, he, he, that whole uh, gimmick he wrestled in before. And also, he was also uh, Kamala too. And of uh, uh, Jerry Lawler had him as Kamala too at one point. Even had him as the Lone Ranger. Just had him, big Plowboy Frazier, seven feet. 500 pounds with a mask on and he was the Lone Ranger. But anyway, 
October 5th, uh, not a good day in uh, professional wrestling, not just because Uncle Elmer got married on that day, but um, uh, it was also the day, uh, God, I can't believe it's been 23 years ago, Dan. Uh, October 5th, 1997, we lost Brian Pillman. Oh, God. Um, the morning of the Bad Blood pay-per-view, uh, he was found in his uh, hotel room in Bloomington, Minnesota. Uh, credit to uh, Jerry Lawler and JR, who we talked about earlier, because they had to break the news and they had to go on with the show, as it were. Um, yeah. And informing yeah, the Vince, that, Vince stopping the show for death. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, but unlike Owen, this happened that, that morning. Oh, and sure. Brian, and Brian was supposed to be in the match uh, with uh, with Mick Foley with Mankind later that night in the Bad Blood uh, pay-per-view. And that was changed up at the, at the last minute. But uh, Jerry Lawler and King had to break it to the fans that uh, Brian Pillman uh, had died that morning. Uh, but the thing is that Bad Blood pay-per-view was also a, a great pay-per-view, if not for the, the main event. That was the Undertaker-Shawn Michaels Hell in a Cell match. Uh, that did great uh, for those guys. And it was also the debut of Kane. So all that took place that same day. Uh, Glenn Jacobs coming in, ripping the door off the uh, cage and confronting the Undertaker. And Vince McMahon called, that's Kane! That's got, no, I'm sorry, JR, that's Kane! That's gotta be Kane! That's gotta be Kane! Yeah. But that was October 5th, 1997. Two years later, and I said, Dark Day in Professional Wrestling, October 5th, 1999, uh, at a TV taping in Nassau Coliseum in um, Long Island. That was the uh, match, the, the bout, the bouch, the match, the bouch. The bouch. Finally, um, finally, Craig gets one. Finally. It's not <laughs> just me that can't speak English. That's one for me and 37000 for Dan. God damn it. <laughs> but, uh, un- unfortunately, that was the match where uh, D'Lo uh, injured uh, Darren Drozdov. And oh, good. Let's celebrate that. Wrestling career. I'm sorry, it was a dark day in wrestling. That's um, true. Yeah, but, uh, that's true. Uh, but I, and I, didn't, I don't bring that up as a milestone in professional wrestling. I just want to call attention to the fact that professional wrestling, as much as we have fun with it and how uh, how fragile life is, not just life that, you know, we're losing, but someone's career like that. Darren draws up and who knows what he would have done, you know, with the rest of his career. You know, uh, he had promise. There's obviously something that Vince liked about him. He was a former football player. He was a fine athlete, great guy. Um, but what happened with D'Lo was just an accident. They both admit it. It was no one's fault. It just yeah. happened. It's and, one um, of those things that happened. Things. Yeah. It just happened to have ha- happened, happened to, to happen that way. To him, yeah. But uh, yeah. But I just wanted to to bring that up just as a way of how professional wrestling works. Not always the way we want it to. Uh, October sixth, nineteen eighty five, the Cotton Bowl Extravaganza, the second annual Cotton Bowl Extravaganza, twenty five thousand. Texas, this some would I would point to this as the last gasp of the uh world class. Okay, um, uh, 1985, uh, obviously going into 86, the parade of champions wasn't as 
going to be as big, but this was the last big crowd they had, the main event. Kevin and Kerry Von Erich versus the dynamic duo of Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams in a hair versus hair match. The losing team would get their head shaved. Uh, Kevin and Kerry would come out on top, and both Gino and Chris um, would uh, get their head shaved. Uh, Gino tried to escape, and he was tackled by a young Chris Von Erich. And that they tried to put Chris over with that tackle that he could be a great wrestler someday. And he, he's the next Von Erich in line. And as we know how that turned out. But um, that was the uh, – tried to make uh, Chris into a uh, big star. But that was the Cotton Ball Extravaganza 20 uh, – yeah. I mean, at that point, the ride was over. It was on life support, no pun intended, with everything that was going on with the Von Erichs. Mm-hmm. It was a matter of time. That territory, I mean, we always cite that as a ratings thing about talking about how it was getting 11 shares on a Christian mm-hmm. television network when it would air. Yeah. And just tragedy after tragedy and replacement after replacement and bungled storyline after bungled story. At that point, I, I it, it is very, I have not seen a company die such a slow death before. No, especially not one with such promise. They had so many great future superstars, and they were tailor-made for the 80s, especially when you have three great-looking movie star uh, charismatic sons like David, Kevin, and Carrie. Uh, Just cable TV was exploding. Wrestling was exploding. MTV was exploding. You got these three kids that grew up in the business that know it inside and out and it can do it better than any brothers out there before or since young in early 20s the hottest territory in the nwa they're licensed to print money all over texas they're rock stars they can't go anywhere privately without being mobbed and the ratings that they're being syndicated now are dwarfing or beating what was happening in the wwf and in other nwa markets and just like that, I, I always say David was the first domino, and uh, the rest just fell after that. It just didn't, you know, and the tragedies, you know, Gino, Chris Adams. Um, and you know what's worse is it got even yeah. worse uh, when, like, GWF came in and just – Yeah. Oh, when you try reading the – it gets so convoluted because you – know, when they, Well, when he sold it to USWA, and then when – I think with when when Eric Embry was the the champion and when they had a war with USWA and World Class and when Eric Embry won the 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 fight and he won the company and it would become USWA when he went to the top of the the sportatorium and tore down the World Class banner even though the World Class group was supposed to be the heel group then him tearing that down. That killed me, man. Seriously. I mean, I know there was you, an angle that – You and everybody else. Because... And everyone in Texas. I mean, that was – that's a symbol of – that was – it was a religion. I don't think we could put – for those who know, no. But for the casual wrestling fans or just younger wrestling fans who don't know, just know it by name, they were more popular – uh, the only thing more popular was the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. Basketball, yeah. certain. Well, hockey wasn't a thing yet. Basketball, certainly baseball. Uh, they were. 
superstars among superstars in any entertainment business uh yeah. period in in texas it's you you couldn't get any bigger and almost 11 well, maybe 11 years later of that yeah. primetime run then mm-hmm. ripping that sign down yeah but I, well, what I, did you think was going to happen when you did that like, i don't and to and the the world class fans the world class wrestling fans people will say the ecw fans were the the ecw fans with all their passion and their verve and their loudness and their boisterous and their loyalty and taking nothing away from that because you'll still get an ecw chant at some point and somewhere especially in the northeast annoyingly but they dwarf their passion dwarfs in comparison to world-class fans because world-class fans they watch these kids grow up so that was like they were their kids so seeing the von erics on tv and they knew about them just from the local newspapers anytime they did anything in high school in track carrie was the number one discus thrower in the united states he was going to the olympics in 1980 had we not boycotted, David was an all-state basketball star. Kevin was an all-state track star. So they knew everything they did was in the local paper. So when they wrestled on TV or just when they had house show bouts in and around Texas, it would be on the sports page the next day. So these kids, the Von Erics and world class in general, was a religion yeah. Okay, to, to fans in wrestling it was and if you want to be a heel you 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 insult the cowboys i mean that's what jerry lawler said when he first came to to wrestle in texas hey uh i just got an announcement of the mom who left their 11 kids on in dallas and and irving field um the giants are beating them 13 to nothing (laughs) listen even even vince russo even Vince Russo got a good line in in Dallas on a Nitro about the <laughs> the Cowboys when the Eagles beat him. What was it, thirty-one to fourteen or something? Yeah, or forty-one to fourteen. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I forget the beginning line. He goes, "That's it. I'm ready to go. Not a <laughs> not like your not Dallas like Cowboys double. yesterday. <laughs> I mean, is that embarrassing or what?" how dare you Uh, but on the other side that's why kevin and and von eric and i uh hooked up on twitter because i made the joke a couple years ago which is not so funny now because they were in the stanley cup final about Mm -hmm. the lack of dallas stars fans in the arena i said there's more people at the sportatorium on a friday night than there is at this hockey game right now and he messaged me good one (laughs) They well, showed that to me. That's so passionate. It's awesome. not the word for Dallas wrestling fans, is what I'm trying to say. No, no. and world, and what happened on May world 6, class, 19, Excuse me. Yeah, and world. What happened on May 6, nineteen eighty four, at Texas Stadium when Kerry beat Rick was such a culmination of so many hopes and dreams. Um, it was big, and Rick Flair would tell you that too. That anytime he had to go to Texas, yeah, and he spent every Christmas in Texas because that's when world class had their Christmas extravaganza. He'd know he had to wrestle Yvonne Eric in Reunion Arena because the world-class sportatorium was too small. And it was at the Reunion Arena in Christmas Day, 1982, the beginning of the Freebird-Von Eric feud. And the most 
imitated spot in wrestling history. The cage door across the head. It started Christmas 82, but uh, it happened in world class. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's something to behold. But uh, the Cotton Bowl extravaganza, October 6, 1985, did 25,121 uh, to the Cotton Bowl. And uh, that was their last, you know, big show. Uh, I want to say one more thing about uh, we lost Brian Pillman uh, 23 years ago. Uh, his we didn't talk we we just glossed over that we lost him and I went right into the paper the, but this guy had a career that I think. Uh, Let's just put it this way: had he be around for another 20 years, yeah, uh, he would have eclipsed a lot of the guys that we talked about right now as far as longevity and what mm-hmm. he did. Yeah, he did so much in that little time. Mm-hmm. It's well, he might have gotten worse as he no no. No, there's there's no way I'll die on that hill. Uh, Brian Pillman would have been on a, a Mount Rushmore list. He he still is, but you nobody would have been able to argue it another twenty years in this business. I mean, oh my he god! Was, and you saw what WCW did with him, Dan. It's before the accident. He would be hot, and then they would take it away from him. He'd get a big push, and then get and then he'd be invisible. But he'd always find his way back up. Flair loved him. Flair wanted to work with them. The one uh, Sunday night match they had got the biggest ratings that WCW had had in three years. For It was a one-hour match, and then it was nothing, and then no more. Uh, yeah. The guys loved him because he was a, uh, he was a guy that uh, everyone got along with. He loved to rib. He loved to, to joke around. And if, But also, they knew not to mess with him because Brian Pillman, uh, even though he didn't have the wrestling background, he was a legitimate tough guy. He was a walk-on on Cincinnati Bengals. He walked on to Ohio State University. He didn't. He wasn't drafted. He walked on, yeah. and he got on the team. Yeah, here this I am. Freaking tough. Yes. <laughs> so also, even if you, he was, he was, a, he was a good guy, but he was also a guy that you know, if it came down to it, if it came down to shoot, he could probably kick the ass of most of the guys back there. Okay, they like you. You know, I mean, not I, mess with a lot of people thought he was nuts. Yeah. And and even and I respect and you, it, Booker man. And he used it to Bobby Heenan, another one. Going back to Bobby Heenan, he, he <laughs> bought, Brian Pillman was the only one to make Bobby Heenan swear on the air. <laughs> he said, and, "What the he, f- you doing? What are you, are you doing?" And he using Brian was using him as a as a shield, and he Bobby kind of apologized. He made yeah. Bobby Heenan apologize on yeah. air for his behavior. Because that was his, oh, but that was who who Pillman was, and he used that to get leverage to go to the WWF. Um, he reminds me a lot of Betty Gilbert um, in that they both, because it might have their height or whatever limitations they had, never got. I thought the opportunities they should have. I bought. I thought either one of them would have made great horsemen. I thought Pillman would have been should have been a horseman, um, especially after after Austin left or when they broke up when they broke up the Hollywood Blondes, another tag team that uh, would have been on the Mount Rushmore of great teams had they stayed together. Um, but I always thought that Pillman uh, didn't get the, the opportunities he should have, didn't get the pushes he should have. And like Eddie, uh, the, act, the car accident that he had limited his career, and they also were addicted to painkillers. So I hate those parallels between two guys that I mean... could, could have had – Two of the greatest careers ever. 
painkiller pain it's there's no secret anymore jesus no it's no secret we all know you know yeah yeah and finally for the wrap up on this issue issue episode oh, this of issue wrestling, of, of this issue of wrestling so we'll just turn the page on this issue but uh finally to say to end on this particular uh episode of wrestling historian uh we say happy belated uh 85th birthday to the man who made me a wrestling fan he was there the first wrestling match i saw and he is the reason why we have a world wrestling entertainment happy belated posthumous 85th birthday to the living legend Bruno Sammartino. Bruno, yeah. Would have been 85. Happy birthday, Bruno. Happy birthday, Bruno. And that, gentlemen and ladies, is a wrestling historian. And my name is Craig Lagans, and you can reach me on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at C-R-A-I-G-L-I-G-G-E-O-N-S. Before I say goodbye, I just want to tell you how hard it is to follow you and talk to Harry on chat and Twitter. Oh my God. T- exactly. Thank you. Oh my God. Uh, why shouldn't I be talking about my vision? Because your brain is what makes the decision after you see it with your eyes, you stupid idiot. <laughs> Follow me on Twitter and watch me argue with this schmuck at DanLaw83, <laughs> VOCNation.com is where you can find. You've, you've only got one attention span, oh. Dan. How, how do you expect to? I don't know. I have one thing. Uh, <laughs> you went to both, idiot. Yes, that's what I said, Harry. Oh, my God. He. Oh, my God. Harry, that's what I just said. You, mm. you, 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 you schmuck. Evil mutant. <laughs> you goddamn pain in my ass. And my auto mod wouldn't allow the word idiot to go through, which is even funnier. <laughs> VOCNation.com. Yeah, one attention man. You're generous, Craig. No, one's it. One, I don't yeah. have two. It's one. It uno. That's it. And then it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's a great story, Craig. What is he saying? <laughs> what do you think? Uh, on your smartphone, <laughs> on your podcast app, type of VOC Nation. Radio network. Uh, I don't know what we're going to do tomorrow night because Harry's not coming anymore. So he's been let go. So it's just me, Justin, and Chris. I guess we'll find something to do. But join us to find out what happens. For Craig Lagans, the above average comedian, Dan Calchico. We'll see you next week. Have a good This is Lance Storm, and if I can be serious for a minute, you're listening to VOC Nation Worldwide. VOC Nation is one of the longest-running wrestling podcast networks. Having started way back in 2010, VOC Nation provides daily streaming shows where fans have the ability to interact with their hosts and guests via phone calls, emails, and Twitter. VOC Nation hosts also include former backstage interviewer from both AWA and WWE, Ken Resnick, former WCW performer The Maestro, 
former Impact performer Wes Prisco, Pro Wrestling Illustrated contributor Brady Hicks, and former Philadelphia radio personality Bruce Works. VOC Nation's two most popular shows are Wrestling with History, featuring Ken Resnick and Bruce Wirtz, streaming live on Wednesday nights at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, and In the Room, featuring Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks and WCW alum The Maestro. Both shows take callers live during the show, and recent guests have included General Adnan, Tito Santana, Haku, Earl Hebner, Dangerous Danny Davis, Jimmy Hart, Ricky Steamboat, Brodus Clay, and so many more. Archive free content includes past interviews with huge names like Hulk Hogan, Jesse Ventura, Kurt Angle, Sting, Mick Foley, Joey Styles, Howard Finkel, and so many more. Listen live at VOCNation.com and subscribe to all the podcasts by searching VOC Nation Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to follow these guys on Twitter at VOCNation. Rock and Roll Union for the past two years has been the place for rock and roll, new rock and roll, debuting rock and roll, and some of the old classics as well. We have welcomed guests from around the world, national artists, and more. We have excited many people by our live events. We've welcomed everybody into the fold, and we continue to do so on a weekly basis. Guys, that is Rock and Roll Union, and that is what we do for you. Saturdays, 6 p.m. Eastern, VOC Nation. Wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey. The morning after, right here on the VOC Nation Radio Network. Brady Hicks and... Homeboy Rap Boy here. I tell you what, we got a good show right here in the afternoon at 12 o'clock. Eastern Standard Time on the VOC Nation. Talking wrestling, football, news, whatever's going on in the world today. VOCNation.com. Each and every Thursday night, check it out. WCW star Stro Maestro takes you on a journey. It's WCW Retro. Talking old school match of the week. Talking dream matches. Taking your calls and looking back on an incredible career of acting, entertaining, and wrestling. Check it out. VOCNation.com. WCW Retro. Be sure to call in Thursday nights, 9 Eastern, on the VOC Nation Radio Network. The worldwide leader in entertainment. This is the VOC Nation Radio Network.